back in May, I had the privilege of going to Israel. And during that trip, I had the opportunity to spend a full day with a man named Tom Hess. Some of you may know who Tom is. He's actually the founder of Jerusalem House of Prayer. And when he founded that uh, ministry 30 years ago, uh, it began a movement back here in the United States called the International House of Prayer. And so there's uh, a lot to be admired when somebody starts something that you can clearly see fruit. But there is a story behind the launch of Jerusalem International House of Prayer that captivated me. It was that God gave him a vision that was life-altering. What I've discovered in life as I interact with people is that if somebody does not have a vision for their life, then they really are just about existence. They exist to exist that day. I have a job, I go and do that job. And maybe it's just simply, it boils down to just simple providing, you know, providing for the family, meeting the needs for the family. But if there's vision, then anything you do to provide for the family is underneath that vision. Anything you would do with your life and how you engage that job is underneath that vision. For Tom, what it meant was is that he had a very successful business here in Lancaster County, ends up being a part of a large movement across the United States of business leaders coming together to start a prayer movement for businesses here in our country. In the midst of this, you're thinking that, you know, well, he's got, God's using him significantly here in the United States, creating a movement among business leaders. He's, being, he's successful with that business. What, what other vision could God possibly provide except for God gave him a vision that he had to wrestle with, and then he finally stepped out and aligned his life with that vision, and that was to go to Jerusalem and, and build and create this idea of a place of prayer. As he studied scripture, God was giving him a vision that, that, that Jerusalem needs prayed over on behalf of the entire movement and kingdom of God worldwide. So he gives up his company. He sells everything goes to Jerusalem with no place to live. Shows up in Jerusalem, day one, is at a famous hotel on the Mount of Olives and runs into a man who comes up to him, a complete stranger, runs into a man, says to, and this man says to him, and say, would you be in need of a place to live? And, of course, Tom's like, oh, yeah, I, I actually do. So the man walks him from that hotel to the house. This hotel's on the Mount of Olives. The house is just above the Garden of Gethsemane. So he overlooks the Garden of Gethsemane, has for 30 years, and when you overlook the Garden of Gethsemane, you're also beholding the entire Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Every day, that's what he wakes up to when he's in Jerusalem. It's quite an interesting story how vision guided him to do something so radical. Eventually, within days, somebody, again, not knowing that he's looking for a location to create a house of prayer, says, I have this building on the Mount of Olives that I could use a tenant for. And he goes over and, and it becomes now and has been for 30 years, Jerusalem International House of Prayer. 
and it sits on the backside of the Mount of Olives. Which if you study scriptures closely, you'll know that when Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection, that he ascended after, after having climbed the Mount of Olives and was on his way down to Bethany. So he's on the backside of the Mount of Olives. He ascended and he says, I will return to this place. So somewhere within a few hundred yards of this Jerusalem house of prayer will be the return of Jesus Christ. And there is a place where 24-7 prayer is happening right there on that hill, praying for Jerusalem, but praying for the nations of the world. Totally captivated me. On top of this house of prayer, you could pray, and there was things on the wall that told you which countries you're looking at and you're praying for. Every country of the world is prayed for on that hill, from that place, every day. Fascinating. What does vision do to wreck a person's life? To change the path. I can tell you that when I was, after I had surrendered my life to Christ, after a lot of cataclysmic events in my life, uh, that, that a dream happened literally in my sleep where I was turning the pages of my yearbook only to see that as I got to the pages where it's the individual pictures of all the students in that school, that I was seeing some of those pictures being enveloped in flames and other pictures not. I woke up and I had drenched the bed with sweat. It it, it had totally become such an amazing dream in that moment. But what it told me and what it provoked in me is that there are people that I go to school with every day that don't know Jesus. And I was living in denial of that fact. It wrecked me. And for the next several days in school, I was probably the most odd person going on because I'm walking those halls wondering the soul condition of those that I knew so well. It would be two months later at camp that God made clear that he's calling upon my life. That dream gave me permission to even accept that because I had a resentment to the idea of going into ministry, being the son of a minister. But God had to change my vision. That dream was the beginning of changing the picture by which my life was going to be lived out. And it's altered everything. I would not be in Pennsylvania today if that dream had not happened and the calling that came two months later. And we're all here this morning because God has done something in each of us to cause our paths to come here this morning. What vision guides your life by which all decisions are made? I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. If you do not have a Bible with you, our ushers are coming down right now and they'd be glad to provide you one. This Bible can be for use to keep if you'd like. We're going to be operating out of page 728 in those Bibles. That's where Luke chapter 13 can be found. Context. Jesus is in Jerusalem. But he was not there during that final week. So the Palm Sunday moment has yet to happen. The death and resurrection has yet to happen. Any of the things that happen in that final week have yet to happen, but it's close. 
Jesus is in Jerusalem. He had come down after years of ministry in the northern parts of Israel. He's now in Jerusalem, and this moment happens. It says in verse 31, At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else, because Herod wants to kill you. What kind of a message is that? If I, <laughs> I have to admit, if I was entering Jerusalem for the first time, which I did back in May, if somebody says, you should leave, somebody just said they're going to kill you. I'd be like, where's the fastest way out of town? That would just be me. But no, because Jesus is Jesus, he does what I call divine trash talking. <laughs> All right? And, and if you don't know what trash talking is, that's what athletes do when they're trying to show up the other. So look what Jesus does, and you'll understand why I say that. So he's been told, Herod wants to kill you. Jesus responds, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. So he gives him a name. Go tell that fox. Go tell him. I'm going to stay tomorrow, today. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, and I might even do more of it. Tell him. All right, that's calling him out a little bit, right? Now keep in mind, John the Baptist has already been beheaded by this Herod. So there's reason to believe you should be fearing for your life. But Jesus already knows he's going to die. And he has a mission. And he says, there is a goal that's driving me. And on the third day, it will be accomplished. What's he talking about? It's okay, you can say it. Resurrection. On the third day. So there is a vision that is deep within Jesus to fulfill Something on the third day. And for us, we now know it's that he's going to die. And on the third day, he's going to resurrect. So that's the goal. Is to resurrect from the dead. There's significance in why that is the goal and not the goal of dying. Okay? The goal wasn't to go and be on a cross. That if that was the ending, that would not be a great story for the rest of us. The ending is that he's a resurrected Savior that causes joy and hope and life for all of those who serve him and declare him as Lord and Savior. You got to say amen to that. So in this, you have a vision that has been declared. Look what he says next in verse 33. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. No prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her, gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing Look, your house is now desolate. Look, your house is, is in this wasteland. It's spiritually dead. And you will not see me again until you hear, blessed is he 
who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is not being driven by external forces. He's not being dictated how his steps should go, except by the vision that God gave him for the third day. So are we resonating? You understand, Jesus was undeterred to go anywhere else except for where God would have him to go because there was a goal, a vision, a clear marking point that he was aiming towards. So everything is in preparation to that. So a mere accusation or threat was not going to cause him to change his path. Jerusalem. Go ahead and put the picture of Jerusalem up on the screen. My experience in this city was unexpected. I was expecting to be wowed by the fact that I'm actually seeing this with my own eyes. And I was wowed by seeing it with my own eyes. The first sight I saw of Jerusalem was this. I'm standing on the Mount of Olives, looking at the Temple Mount. Standing on the place that Jesus stood and looked at the city many times. Once I was operating within the city for three days, I will tell you that it is the place where I felt and sensed more dissension, more anger, more disunity than any other place I've ever been in my life. I did not see one act of violence in Jerusalem. This was merely what you could feel and sense in that city. I didn't go projecting that upon the city. I went there and experienced what I'm telling you now. Jerusalem is not a city of peace. It is not a city of peace. When you have the three major religions of the world, now excluding a couple others, but three of the most progressive, growing religions, Christianity, Judaism and Islam claiming the same space as holy. It is a place of conflict. And you could feel it. On the three days I was there, two of the days, we were not allowed to even go to the Temple Mount because it was Ramadan. It was a season where you only, only those who were of Muslim faith could go there. So Christians and Jews kept their distance. But on the one day, we were allowed to go in there. It's not difficult to figure out who is Jewish and who is Christian. I mean, I'm sure there's some that, that were Christian that, that looked a little bit more Jewish. But you could tell the Christians, for many of the Orthodox Jews for sure, it was a place where there was not welcome for many. For the, for the Muslims, they were not welcome by other faiths. For those that were of Jewish uh, descent, they did not welcome the other two branches, if you will. So you walk there feeling the sense of tension. Jesus is calling this out in this text when he says, I look upon Jerusalem and I say, how many times I wanted to be like a mom to you, where I put you under my protective wings and provide you peace from all the uncivility of the rest of the world, that I want to protect you from harm and that you will know that I am the mom that you can run to and find peace. 
But yet Jerusalem is spiritually desolate. It is the result of years of battle. The walls you just saw have layers in it. What is standing now was actually built by the Turks. They had had uh, control for several hundred years over the Temple Mount. And then they rebuilt everything on that mount, but more towards a Muslim point of view. Even that golden dome you saw was to mark the point for where Abraham was going to sacrifice Ishmael. Anybody know your history? In Scripture, it wasn't Ishmael that was sacrificed. It was Isaac. But in this culture, there is a counterfeit to everything that is true. And the counterfeit to the truth of, of what was, who was actually put on that altar was Isaac. Ishmael being the father of many of the Arab tribes, but it was Isaac that was the father of the Jewish or Israelite tribes. Hmm. So the enemy tries to masquerade with its own version of truth so that you miss out on the truth of what actually is. Tension all around. But this city, for whatever reason, becomes the point by which all of this conflict is focused. So you take all the energies of the world that is negative and trying to create different points of view or conflicting points of view or offering different truths. It all hits right there. And you feel it. And Jesus acknowledges, I have longed for you. I have bled for you. I have, I have so much vision for you, but you continue to reject your prophets. So prophets will die in Jerusalem. I want you to turn to the right in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Starting in verse 28. Another moment where, where Jerusalem is the focus of Jesus' love. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going to, up to Jerusalem. Because Jesus kept retreating from Jerusalem back to Bethany. And, and, uh, and that's kind of where he stayed during that time. Likely Lazarus' house. And we know the story of Lazarus. So in verse 28, he says, he's on his way back up to Jerusalem. As he approached Beth, Beth, Bethage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, and tie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. So verse 32. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as, he had been, as they had been told. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and, the, and upon the colt, and Jesus sat on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And they were saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Recognize from what we just read in the text before, Jesus says, I will return to Jerusalem, and when I do, you will hear, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is stated from out of Isaiah 9. That is part of the messianic proclamation that you know the Messiah is coming. And you need to understand that <clears throat> because Jesus had began in Bethany, he's riding up the backside of the Mount of Olives. So you're on the backside of the Mount of Olives, and it says at the point when he is able to take the two, there's a, a divide in the road. The one road stays on the backside of the Mount of Olives. The other one goes to the front side, which overlooks the Temple Mount and all of Jerusalem. So Jesus is now coming up to this pinnacle point. He is now beginning to see the Temple Mount being able to come within view. And he hears this thunderous song, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The response of the Pharisees in the crowd in verse 39 says, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because they knew it was a testament to saying he's the Messiah. He's the chosen one. Jesus responds, verse 40, I tell you. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. The heart of God is being revealed in this moment, and we often go past it. Jesus is kind of coming to this, this crescendo. There's celebration. He's coming as the king, which again, the prophets of old said this would happen, and it's happening. He comes over the crest of the hill. Now he sees Jerusalem, to which many of his messengers have gone and have lost their lives, and now he knows as the primary messenger, the primary Messiah, coming to that city that he too was going to die in Jerusalem. And he weeps. He has compassion. He has love because he knows this is a special place for where he's going to do great work. We're going to skip forward to Psalm 122. And I want to give context to why this was important. If we had more time, I'd show you pictures that, that I took of, of the ruins of Jerusalem. Because it says in this text, O Jerusalem, after he weep, wept over, he says, O Jerusalem, if you only knew that peace was coming. Peace was coming. But instead he says, every stone's going to be overturned. It's interesting to me. That what we're about to read was the vision of the people of Israel. We're going to read the vision of Israel. What they are living their lives in anticipation for. And the moment that was back in Luke 19 is that moment, but they're missing it. So let's look at what it says in Psalm 122. It says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. 
That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statute given to Israel. And there also stands the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Now let me just stop there for a moment before I continue reading. So this is the vision that those who were at the time of Christ were anticipating. They know that, is, that Jerusalem is the place where the house of the Lord is to be. That's where God says, I will put my name on this city. When you read the stories of when David wants to build the temple in Jerusalem, God says, I want it there on that hill. And this is going to be where I place my name forever. It will be the place where the house of the Lord is at. It is also the place where we will then praise him in that house. But I think more importantly than anything, two Important sacrifices, substitutional sacrifices happen on that hill. The one I already referenced, when Isaac was put on the altar on Mount Moriah, which God told Abraham to go to. So Abraham goes on a journey with his son, and God tells him, you're going to sacrifice your son on this hill. Keep in mind, that son was the promised son. He gets put on the altar and when Abraham is ready to put the dagger into him, God holds, sends an angel, holds the hand and says, now I know that you love me. You have not even spared your own son. We know from the book of Hebrews that, that Abraham believed that so much in God that if, if that sacrifice had gone through, he believed that God would somehow resurrect his son. But God instead saved his and spared his son, and provided a ram in his place. Thus providing a temporal sacrifice on behalf of Abraham and his family. Several centuries later, Jesus comes, the promised son of God, and he is going to be a substitutional lamb on behalf of all of us, where we needed sacrifice on behalf of our sins. And Jesus becomes that substitution on our behalf. All of this happens on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount of which you just looked at. This is the place where sacrifice happens. It's where the place where we worship God. And as it says in this text in verse 5, it is the place of judgment. We know that in Revelation chapter 20, that it will actually be at Jerusalem that Satan is judged for the final time. Fascinating. All right here in Jerusalem. The two sacrifices, substitutional sacrifices. This is a place where then God chose for his house of worship, where his name would be placed. And it's the place where the final judgment for Satan and his demons to reap their consequences. All at Jerusalem. Now, let's continue reading to understand the vision of Israel. Verse 6. Because all this is true, because it's the house of the Lord, it's where we're to praise him, because this is a place where his name exists. This is where judgment will happen. So therefore, verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. 
Pray for the peace of Jerusalem that those who love you will be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you, Jerusalem. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity, Jerusalem. In this text, you understand the perspective of the Israelites. They see Jerusalem as the place of highest honor here on this earth. It is the place where God is to be worshipped. It is a place where his name is placed. And it is the place by which all judgment and praise will go forward. Yet after this psalm was written, if you read through the minor prophets and the major prophets, you will know that God sent prophet after prophet to Jerusalem only to be rejected. God had a vision by what he was going to do for the entire world. It was in Jerusalem that you and I received the hope for eternal life. It was in Jerusalem by which all sacrifices would have to come to an end because we had a complete one that served forever. It's there, this vision, the goal that Jesus said was going to happen in Jerusalem. And we're to pray for its peace. Yet, if you go back to Luke chapter 19, it says, O Jerusalem, you missed the peace that you've been longing for. You missed the peace you were longing for. I've come to give you peace, and you missed it. Remember when Jesus was born? Though what the angels proclaimed? Peace on earth and goodwill towards men. That was the message of the coming Christ child. He was coming to provide that peace by which they rejected, just like they did all the other prophets. But yet, God was undeterred. God stayed the course because God had a vision to redeem not just those in Jerusalem, but to redeem all of mankind from what happens in Jerusalem. God stayed the course of his vision. But now I want us to point out, I want us to receive the vision that God has for you and I. I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 9. And if you have those Bibles, it's in page 681, that we, those Bibles we handed out. Matthew chapter 9. So if the heart of God is that he loves people and he's moved towards compassion, he wants to be like that hen gathering the chicks underneath the protective wings. His vision is to provide salvation and, and escape from all the harm that is done in the world then what is God's vision for you and I as part of his mission here on this earth? Verse 35 in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. He was walking among them. He was seeing 
beneath the surface. He didn't just walk in those places and, and just saw people being busy at work and, and, and in a hurry and a rush. That, he went below that. He saw that people were harassed. He saw that they were without vision. He saw that they were without a leader. They were aimless. They had no purpose. And he had compassion on them. Being moved to compassion, he then looks to his 12, his disciples, and says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples, who he's going to send out into the harvest field. But what's he tell them to do? Look around. See what I'm seeing? Do you see that they need a shepherd? Do you see that they're lost? Do you see that they're harassed? Do you see that the enemy is nipping at their heels constantly? Do you see what I see? Do you see that they're ready for vision? Do you see they're ready for purpose? Do you see they're ready for hope? And primarily, do you see that they're ready for peace? Because they have no peace. So his charge to them was, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest field. So in that charge to his disciples, was he telling them, pray for someone else to go? Or was it to engage their heart by seeing what they see and then plead to God for God to send them and realize, I'm here to go. So let's bring it to 21st century, specifically October 14th, 2018. If we practice what the disciples just experienced from Jesus, my question to you is, who proclaims Jesus where you work? Who is God called to proclaim Jesus where you work? Jesus Send someone to where I work. Jesus, send someone to my home where I live. They need Jesus. Jesus, send someone to my neighborhood where I live. Many of my neighbors need Jesus. Jesus, send somebody to my family gathering that's coming up in Thanksgiving and at Christmas. Our families are huge in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Jesus, send somebody, because I have cousins that need Jesus. I have grandparents that might need Jesus. I have parents that might need Jesus. I have nieces and nephews that might need Jesus. Jesus, send someone to tell them about Jesus. Jesus, send somebody my school that vision in my head has been imprinted here for 30 years and I can't lose it I still see the faces on my yearbook enveloped in flames some of them know Jesus now and I praise God for it but we have a lot of students in this room 
that they themselves don't even know Jesus. We also have many in this room that go to school that do know Jesus, but they've been walking the schools and they don't even realize that around them are people that if they were to die today, would not spend eternity with the Father God, but rather be separated for all eternity. So if we pray, if you're a teenager and you pray, Jesus, send somebody to my school and to my class so that they can hear about Jesus. For me, what's been interesting is Jesus, send somebody to the gym I work out with. Unbelievable. A couple of people that I met at the gym now know Jesus just because I worked out there. So strange because I don't like talking to people at the gym. Do you see the difference? If we begin to pray for where we live in our house, Jesus sends someone. If we begin to pray, Jesus sends someone to where I work, Jesus sends someone to my neighborhood, Jesus sends someone to where I go to school, Jesus sends someone where I work out, you start realizing the common denominator is you. The common denominator is you. And that's the vision that God has for our lives. And I, what I've learned and experienced is that Jesus started in the right place by saying, if you begin to see what I see, ask God to send someone. Because if you start praying for God to send someone, you start realizing, I'm here. God can send me. In your bulletins, there is a card that looks like this. You'll notice that on the one side that there's 15 slots. There's nothing magical about the number. It's just an average. You'll notice that there are people here listening in categories just to help you understand. Would you be willing to consider right now in this moment ending the service by praying for three? Praying for someone that you know knows Jesus, but they're in your life and you know that you can encourage them and strengthen them to know Jesus more. They know Jesus, but you're spurring them on. And you're going to pray that way. Secondly, you know somebody in your life that knew Jesus, has claimed Jesus in their past, but right now, they're running from Jesus as fast as they can. We call them prodigals. You know who that might be in your life. Would you pray for them this morning? Or how about those who are interested in faith but are not there yet? Or potentials? Is there somebody in your life you can identify right now? I know they don't know Jesus, but I know they're inquiring. Would you pray for them in this moment? I'm going to give you an opportunity to write down three names in each of those categories. A Christian, a prodigal, and someone who is yet to become one. And take a moment to ask God to send someone. I'm going to give you a moment to do that.
God, align our hearts with your heart. And I'm pretty confident, God, that we, our hearts can't be aligned with your heart unless we see what you see. So God, if there are those of us here that have blinders on that we can't see the harvest around us, remove them and reveal the truth of what you see, that there are people that are harassed, that are hurting, that need Jesus, that are in our lives. And then God, bend us towards prayer, praying that they would be part of the harvest that we are so much anticipating. God, help us to see what you see. Help us to feel what you feel. Help us to do than what you do for the sake of others. We glorify you, Jesus. Jesus said it, I didn't. Not satisfied with 99. There's others that are not in the sheep pen. When a church starts thinking we've got enough, they don't understand the heart of God. This isn't about numbers. This is about the fact that if we stop living out according to the vision of God, then we are choosing to ignore the harvest around us. God wants us to see what he sees, and he wants us to feel what he feels. And that is the calling. Father God, I just ask that you would open our eyes, tenderize our hearts, help us to walk out in obedience to prayer, praying for these people that are in our relational worlds, our oikos, that we may then be used as an ambassador, as a proclaimer of good news to those who need him. So God, do your work in us so that a harvest can be experienced for the sake of the entire kingdom of God. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. If you would like to pray with someone, we'll have people underneath the cross over here. Be glad to pray with you. We'd love to pray for those that are in your relational world that needs Jesus. If you have a son, a daughter, somebody close to you, uh, we'd be glad to pray with you for them. I'll also be up front, be glad to pray with anybody that wishes that. May God help us to walk through the harvest fields, because they're there, and we're walking through them, but to see what he sees. Amen. You're dismissed.